Luke chapter 2. You can turn there with me. Uh, let me pray briefly, uh, and then we'll, I'll jump into this passage here together. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we, we do pray uh, that you would give us all a sense of wonder as we, as we reflect, as we wonder, even as we wander this earth. Father, we, we pray that you'd help us to see the significance of the setting and the scene as the Son of God is born. Encourage us now with this passage and with this, these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you are, have already opened a gift? So not a card, not, not cookies from work, a gift. There's a few of you. I feel like you're jumping the gun a little bit, maybe. It, it feels, a, I, I don't know, maybe. Uh, I'm glad for you. Uh, so for our family, at least the last few years, all of the gifts, and here, let's just be honest. I'm really just talking about the kids. Let's just, that's what we're referring to. But all the gifts have happened Christmas morning. So my mom would come over and my mother-in-law lives with us. And so kind of both sides and then our gifts to the kids and the stockings, it's all happening in one big, and we'd maybe split it by like a brunch, but otherwise it's all happening Christmas morning. But this year we're doing it a little bit different, which I'm, I'm excited about, which is we're open a few gifts tonight at my mom's and then, and then we'll do a few gifts tomorrow. And then cousins come into town tomorrow night. So we have, we have three gift opening times. Some of you are nodding. This is how you are. Maybe you go to one side of the family, then another side of the family. And then Christmas morning at home, some, some version of that, but it, it stretches out the anticipation, right? It's not kind of one and done because when you do all the toys, let's be honest, all the gifts at once, you know, the first toys are kind of forgotten by the last toys, you know, or the first toys are all they really care about. And they're like, okay, I'll keep opening. But till you put batteries in that one, that's all I'm interested in. Right. Luke one is, is drawn out, right? We are 80 verses in and Jesus hasn't been born. This is a biography of sorts about Jesus. And where's Jesus? We're still waiting. We expected Luke to begin with at least Mary and Joseph, but he didn't. That's not how Luke begins. He begins with this guy, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then eventually Mary with some reference to Joseph. And, and it just kind of goes on and on back and forth, setting the scene, all drawn out, lots of anticipation until finally Jesus is born. I want to just review with you really quick. Luke chapter 1. It's a long chapter, 80 verses. But as I said, it begins not with Mary and Joseph, but actually with Gabriel, this angel, appearing to Zechariah. Now, who was Zechariah? He was a priest in the temple. He was older. His wife, who, unable to have children, also now older. What does Gabriel say? Well, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be John, and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Did Zechariah believe? No, he didn't believe. And so Zechariah wasn't able to talk until John was born. And we talked about pattern recognition, right? This reminds us of Abraham and Sarah. Then Gabriel comes to Elizabeth's relative, a young woman named Mary. Where? Well, up in Nazareth. And Gabriel has a message for her. What's the message? Well, she's going to have a son and he's going to be the long-anticipated Messiah. And there's, there's a sign. Your relative Elizabeth, she's, she's showing. And, of course, Mary believed. 
She broke the pattern. She submitted to God's will. And then Mary goes, goes down and visits uh, Elizabeth and rejoices in God's mercy to her, looking on her in her humble estate, exalting her. There's the pattern recognition again, right? We're thinking of Hannah's song, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Then Mary heads home. John is born. Elizabeth, the town, really, family, friends, they all rejoice. Zechariah can talk again. He's primed and ready. He's been thinking about this thing for nine months, filled with the Spirit. He prophesies, having kind of driven to the overpass, Mount Cadillac. He has the view, and he gives the overview of redemptive history. Yes, this is what God is doing. In John, he's just going to point, but in Jesus especially. Only then do we get to Luke 2. 80 verses in, and finally we come to the birth of the Messiah. It's been all Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph and an angel, and now John. So we've talked about pattern recognition. Remember, two, four, six, eight, you know, you remember this. What do we expect? Just having read through Luke 1, what do we expect when we get to Luke 2? Well, top of the list is Jesus to be born. But really close after, we would probably expect maybe an angel, maybe a sign, maybe a song. We've seen that a few times, haven't we? Something significant is going to happen. We expect an angel. We'd expect a sign. We'd expect a, a song. Most of all, we expect Jesus. And of course, we get all of those things, but not in Nazareth. The setting is different. The setting gets our attention. And Luke 2 begins with telling us why we're not in Nazareth. That's where Mary went home to. That's where Jesus was to be born, it seemed. And then, I think the big surprise is these characters. Right? We've only had five people so far. And then you get John born, you get six, right? There's not that many. And then we have these Caesar Augustus. Who's that? No, Caesar was the ruler of the known world, right? So we got Caesar, we got Quirinius, would have been significantly less important. And then down at the bottom of the rung, we get some shepherds outside of Bethlehem. So I want to ask with you this morning, what in the world are these characters doing in Luke chapter 2? There's some things that we expect, and then there's some things that we don't expect. And on the don't expect is some new characters, especially these guys. Top of the rung, bottom of the rung. Why? Why the kings and why the shepherds? Point number one. Point number one. Kings and shepherds around. This is the setting. There's kings and there's shepherds around. Now, what am I calling kings? Look at how verse one begins of Luke chapter two. You see that there's actually two leaders mentioned. Caesar Augustus and then verse two, Corinius. And the contrast here is between these guys and Jesus, right? So you got these kings, you got these rulers, and then you have baby Jesus. Caesar Augustus, we know from elsewhere, ruled some 40 years. And he sent out this decree, we're told here, to all the world, that is to all the Roman world, all the known world. And it had to do with taxation. He's, he's over a large area. But the contrast begins to build, right? He's busy governing, ruling, taxing his subjects, expanding his 
empire. So Caesar Augustus is doing kind of Caesar Augustus-y things, right, as we begin. It's like not that surprising. It'd be like if, if the headline, you know, you know, President Biden presidenting. Be like, oh, okay, well, you know, this is what we would expect. Without his knowledge, though, the true ruler of the world is being born. On some outskirts, on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire, while the world's rulers are just given another decree, more taxes, God is advancing his purposes just like he prophesied. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Caesar is not aware of God's sovereignty at this point. He's just doing Caesar things. But God is doing God things. This is how one author put it. God used Roman administrative policy to fulfill Micah's prophecy that the Messiah would be born exactly where the Messiah was to be born, Bethlehem. So this census explains how Mary and Joseph ended up where God wanted them, in Bethlehem for Jesus' birth. So Joseph needed to go back to where he was from to register because he was of the house and lineage of David. So this would have been maybe a 100-mile, roughly, journey for them. Probably about three days, there's no mention of donkeys, and there's a good chance Mary walked. And if Mary is at all like my wife, there's a good chance this helped induce labor, right? Why did Mary need to go? Well, we're not told, but again, it would make sense that Joseph wanted to be with Mary. Or Mary wanted to be with Joseph, right, for the birth. This would seem reasonable, But before we get to the birth, look with me at verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Notice what's mentioned twice there. David. So when I'm reading later in the Bible and I see reference to things way earlier in the Bible, not hundreds of years, Thousands of years before, I, I want to take note. Like, what is David doing? He's been in, he's been in Luke a couple times now. This is, I think, the third or fourth time he's been mentioned. We don't want to miss the significance that Luke is pointing out through the mention of David, Jesus' Davidic lineage. So Jesus is an heir to David's throne. His legal descent is important because it establishes that Jesus, this baby, is Israel's Messiah, their true king. Foretold by the prophets, long anticipated, is arriving, and he doesn't want us to gloss over that. David's going to be mentioned again in verse 11. Bethlehem is going to be called simply the city of David. So the king is in our passage, but it's not Caesar. That's striking. It's not Quirinius or any local governor. It's not Herod. It's Jesus. Little baby born up in Bethlehem. Look down at verse 8 where the scene changes. The characters are now, well, they're shepherds and some sheep. There's no fanfare, at least not yet, in in Bethlehem. 
But here with the shepherds, we have the first witnesses to God becoming man. For them, it was just a normal night watch. Uh, These guys worked third shift. It's likely they were hired. Bethlehem is not far from Jerusalem. It's likely that they were hired to take care of animals that would be used for what? For sacrifice at the temple, especially around Passover. There would have been an influx of these hired shepherds. Then an angel shows up. How are they going to respond? Well, if you were guessing based on pattern recognition, you would guess they would be fearful. And you would suspect that the angel might say something like, fear not. Right? Like we've seen this before. We know, we know the story. This is the third time. And sure enough, the angel shows up and they're not like, wow, cute. No, they're afraid, right? They're afraid. And so what does the angel say? Verse 10, fear not. I got good news for you. This is news marked with joy. But before we get into that, why shepherds? I want to linger over this with you for for a little bit. Why shepherds? Now, there's a sense in which we're not told. But there's a lot of things that the Bible wants us to notice, but the Bible doesn't tell us. The cookies aren't always on the bottom shelf. There's things like pattern recognition. Or remembering passages from the Old Testament that are important for us to have in the back of our minds. So we're just going to kind of pause the sermon at this point and reflect on why shepherds? Why shepherds? I think they are significant. All Luke says is that they were nearby. They're in the same region. But I think there's more going on than that. Shepherds were, were outsiders. Because of their job, they would have been ceremonially unclean a lot of the time they would have been viewed negatively we know like we we might think shepherd and we think davidic royalty like oh man a shepherd that's really nice that's not how they were viewed viewed at all i think we got a theme again do you remember mary's song this reversal the exalting of the lowly and the lowering of the exalted He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, like Caesar, exalted those of humble estate, like Mary, and now these shepherds. So their lowly circumstance is associated with Jesus' lowly circumstance, and it's on full display as, as the angels appear now to these shepherds. The first witnesses were not the powerful, those whose testimony would go a long way in, in court. No, it's, it's these guys. If you wanted to get the word out about the birth of the king, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to third shifters outside of town. You'd pick someone well-known, maybe Caesar Augustus, or at least a local governor like Quirinius. Maybe you'd go to the religious, to go to the temple mount. But the angel appears to average folk. And there's something here for us. Again, we've seen this theme already emphasized in Luke. He goes to working shepherds. This is how God works. The true king isn't only accessible to those who are elite, but to any who will come to him by faith. So Jesus came for for single moms and the unemployed and awkward teens and lonely widows. Came for the guy working the line and the woman waiting on your table. Jesus came for those exhausted by life. 
And his birth is good news for them, for you, for me, for all. This is one reason, I think, why hired shepherds matter. Jesus is good news for third shifters. But I think there's more going on. Think about it. Already mentioned Bethlehem being close to Jerusalem. They're raising sacrificial animals, most likely. We aren't told this. We don't know for sure. But there's a good, there's a good chance. And Luke may be using them to kind of point forward to the sacrificial lamb of God, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Or maybe King David, right? Maybe the royalty. King David, before he was King David, was what? A shepherd boy, right? He was a shepherd and then a king. And where are these shepherds? They're near the city of David. Luke may be drawing our minds back to the king. And then to Jesus, the shepherd king from where? From Bethlehem, the city of David. I think there's another theme going on as well. This one requires us not to go back to the Old Testament, but to go forward in Luke's gospel. I think it's worth just kind of pausing and saying, okay, are the shepherds significant and how so? Where do we see shepherding elsewhere in Luke? There's a lot that happened around Jesus's birth. Matthew includes things that Luke didn't include. Not everyone tries to include everything. So Luke chose to include this significant event under the inspiration of the spirit for a reason. So why, why shepherds? Maybe you remember the story of Zacchaeus, that wee little man. Do you remember that guy? The short guy named Zacchaeus. And uh, he was a, a tax collector. He's actually called the chief tax collector, which means like super bad, right? Super bad guy. This is like, you know, government tax guy. Like, you just don't like this guy. Already like, ugh. and he's short and he knows Jesus is coming. So he wants to see Jesus. So what does he do? He runs ahead. He climbs a tree. Jesus is going to pass by. You know, you know the story, I'm guessing. And, and as Jesus passes by, what does he do? He stops and he turns and he looks up in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, you need to come down because I need to visit your house. I need to come stay with you. And Zacchaeus is like, sure, yes, he comes down. And what does he do? He, he repents and he's generous and he begins making restitution for all the people that he's defrauded. He's excited to have Jesus come. He couldn't be happier. But of course, the people aren't happy because Jesus is going to be a guest with a known sinner, with this tax collector of the frauder of the people. He's part of the problem, right? They're under Roman occupation. This is not good, Jesus. But salvation comes to Zacchaeus' house when Jesus comes over. And do you remember Jesus' last words to Zacchaeus? This is what he says. For the son of man, he's referring to himself, came to seek and to save the lost. What is Jesus saying? I'm a shepherd. That's what shepherds do. That's shepherding language. Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd that's coming to seek to save and the save lo- the lost. I think Luke expects us at least expects two things from us when we, when we read Jesus' words. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The first is to think, all right, Jesus is a shepherd. Shepherds seek and save lost sheep. Zacchaeus seemed to be seeking Jesus, but really Jesus was seeking him. But then Luke also expects us 
to not parachute in to Luke 19, but to read his gospel. It's one of the things I think we forget is that the Bible is meant to be read in a sitting, in in a whole. And if we did that, Luke knows that we would have just read something back in Luke 15. And it's a parable of Jesus involving what? Lost sheep. Do you remember this? Right? And the shepherd does what? He goes and he seeks the sheep, this lost one, until he finds it. And then he rejoices and welcomes it home. And do you remember who Jesus was teaching that parable in Luke 15 to? He's teaching it to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, and he's teaching it about tax collectors. Do you see? Right? So Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a shepherd. You guys listening over there? All right, they're listening. Let me tell you about a shepherd. And this shepherd goes out and he seeks a lost sheep. And then Jesus says, okay, let me show you what that looks like. I'm the shepherd and the lost sheep isn't you all religious leaders. It's the tax collectors you hate. I'm going to go seek and save that kind of a lost person, a really lost person, a known sinner, a defrauder. One who's part of the problem. I'm going to seek and save sinners like that. And of course, this theme, I think, is is rooted and supported by this very image that we have at Jesus' birth. Luke wants us to see Jesus as a shepherd, something he'll claim explicitly in John's gospel. And I think Jesus' birth introduces this. So why kings? Why, is, why kings? Why mention of David? Why shepherds around? These characters are not just bystanders of history who happen to be in the region. No, I think Luke includes them for a reason. He wants us to see that these kings and these shepherds are setting the stage for the arrival of who? The shepherd king. Jesus Christ. So point number two, the shepherd king arrives. Point one, kings and shepherds around. Point two, the shepherd king arrives. Let's go back now to Luke chapter two, verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We have several uh, Christmas movies that we really enjoy. There's one called The Star that we now have a little tradition of watching every year. Some of you have seen this. But notice what's not here. There's no animals. There's actually no stable. There's no innkeeper. Right? There's a lot that we associate that this is not here. Right? None of these things are mentioned. They're, they're guesses, perhaps educated guesses. What, what is mentioned? Well, you have these swaddling cloths. They actually become the sign, right? When the angel comes, that's the sign. How are you going to know? Well, you're going to go over to Bethlehem, shepherds, and you're going to look for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Of course, these swaddling cloths have been kind of romanticized, but um, they're just what you would do with a newborn, right? Swaddling them. There's nothing special here going on, I don't think. The manger, though, that's a little unusual. That sounds like a sign, Right. Right? That, 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 that's, that's not a baby being treated like a baby. It's likely a feeding trough. Maybe they were in some sort of an animal pen near or under or around a house. Maybe a small cave, we're not told. 
swaddling cloths, manger. And then we have reference to this inn. And of course, the word is, is really broad. You've probably heard this before. We, it could be an inn. Could be like a hostel kind of thing. Could be a guest room of a relative that lived back where David, or sorry, uh, Joseph was from back in Bethlehem. There's a more specific word for inn, which Luke includes in his gospel. It's not used here. This is a broader term. But I think at the root, Luke wants us to know that, that Joseph and Mary, they didn't find lodging where they would expect to. They weren't received. They were outside the normal place in a feeding trough. Jesus's rejection began early. In Luke 1, sorry, Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. Again, it's, it's, it's just striking to me as I was reflecting on the passage. Jesus is born. And you'd expect like more things to be happening. You, know, you could almost miss it in the narrative, actually. Just kind of reading through. Okay, they're traveling. It was time. And, and, then, and then the angels appear to you, the shepherds. It's, it's almost underemphasized, it seems. But the significance is massive. God has come to live physically with his creation. He's become man. The son of God has entered into our world. And we know from elsewhere in scripture to defeat Satan and death and sin. But it's not what they expected. It's not what we expect. We expect leaders to have some sort of military might or to bring stability financially or economic growth. We expect our leaders to communicate strength. And when they don't, we might be tempted to even mock them. It's not what we expect. And here's Jesus. The very picture of weakness. King of the universe here, baby. Had to be wrapped, couldn't wrap himself. Had to be set. We should make sure we don't miss the significance of Jesus. So what do the angels say? Look at, again at verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We've already mentioned Caesar. I want to mention Caesar Augustus one more time. Outside of the Bible, archaeologists have found an early calendar. Uh, this is a Roman calendar. Uh, it's trans- translated, obviously, here into English from just a few years before this. This is how Caesar wanted to be viewed. So what I'm about to read is propaganda. That's what we would call this. This is propaganda. Quote, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our lives, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit mankind, sending him a savior, both for us and for our descendants, 
that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all precious previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birth of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. Oh my goodness, gag, right? I'm sure it was gag-worthy then, too. Everyone's like, oh boy, here we go. But notice, this is what he wanted them to know. Providence had sent a little g, God, to be the little s, Savior of the Roman world. And his birth, beginning of this, is to be called good news. And then the angel comes a few years later to these shepherds and brings true good news About the true son, Jesus, God's son, who will be the true savior of the world. Caesar said, man, it's good news that a man has become a God. The Bible says it is good news that God has become a man. Caesar was to be worshipped because he was becoming transcendent, at least according to what he dictated here. Jesus was to be worshipped because the transcendent was entering into our world. This, this king was moving away from his people by becoming a god. And yet our shepherd king has moved towards us in our lowly estate to seek and to save us in our lostness. He promised peace, wiping out his enemies, expanding his kingdom. And the true king promises peace. Through being killed by his enemies for his enemies. Luke is pointing to the end of the story. Pointing to the cross. Think about how Christmas and Easter relate, right? Shepherds, the lowest of the low, are the first witnesses of Jesus' birth. And women, first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Both groups didn't have high standing in that society. But God exalts the lowly and lowers the exalted. The witnesses on the scene, the nobodies, give a a ring of truth to the account, doesn't it? Notice that here in Luke chapter 2, it's midnight, and yet it's like day. The glory of the Lord filled the sky. In Luke 23, it's going to be the middle of the day. It's going to be as dark as night. You see the contrast, the significance of Christ's birth. Luke 1 and 2, we've already seen this, are marked by joy and rejoicing. Luke 23, by death, then life, then light on Sunday morning as Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and darkness. Unlike Caesar, unlike his claims, his royal propaganda, the baby Jesus... The eternal son of God, the shepherd king, comes and humbles himself to seek and to save the least and the lost. Joy and gladness language has permeated Luke 1, and we see it again here. Fear not, for behold, I proclaim the good news of great joy to you. Kids, I know we have more kids in here than normal. You're doing a great job listening want you to notice one thing lasting joy lasting joy comes through through jesus i think you can remember that here's a way to help you remember that 
when, when, when that new toy that maybe you're going to get, no promises, begins to disappoint just a little bit, when, when the new game starts to get a little boring, when the gift you love gets broken on Tuesday, when the batteries die and you can't figure out why your parents aren't putting more in, remember that the joy of Christmas is a joy that never goes away and, and never ends. Christmas is great. I can't wait to open presents. I don't get as many as I used to, especially relative to the, the stack uh, that's there. But I, I, like, I like it. As I said, I'm looking forward to it, uh, especially over the next uh, day and a half here. But remember this. When, when disappointment comes, and it will come. I still remember some of the most disappointing gifts I got growing up. When disappointment comes, and the joy of the Christmas gift and toy starts to wear off, remember this. Lasting joy comes through Jesus. So enjoy his good gifts, receive them, give thanks. And when you feel that tinge of disappointment, look beyond the good gift to the gift giver, to the gift, to Jesus Christ, the reason for Christmas. Look again at the end of verse 10, verse 10, Jesus brings joy for all the people, for the nation of Israel, but beyond that for all, for all the people like the Magi who are going to come and worship him from the east. That joy is offered to you. How can Jesus be a joy to you? Only by being your savior. When you see that you need that from Jesus to be rescued from your sin, your rebellion, to be saved, he can be your joy. When you see what you need, when you see what you deserve, judgment, not mercy, the mercy that Mary praised God for, the mercy that Zechariah praised God for, the mercy that all the friends and family of Zechariah and Elizabeth praised God for, that can be your song. If what you desire is, is peace with God, Jesus will be your joy. Jesus can never produce this joy for someone for whom he's not their savior. To experience Jesus as your savior is to respond to him in worship like the angels, like the shepherds, like Mary, like Elizabeth, like Zechariah. To worship and proclaim, to share the good news. So if you're not responding to Jesus with worship, just thinking about your life, not just the fact you may or may not be singing this morning. If you're not responding to Jesus with a life of worship, I think you have reason to ask, is he my savior? Private worship of a private savior that stays private. That's not Christianity. That's not Luke 1 and 2. What about Mary? Look down at verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is deeply personal for her. And yes, Christianity is deeply personal, but it's not private. Do you see the difference? So personal worship of a personal savior, which cannot stay private, that's Christianity. It has to go public. So let me ask you, is your Christianity personal or private? True saving faith in Jesus will be personal. You, my friend, must believe in Christ. 
trust him as your only savior, but it cannot remain private. James says that if your faith is only private, it isn't saving faith. Personal faith changes your life. True saving faith will always result in what we find in Luke 1 and 2, which is worship. It cannot stay private. If you don't have this faith, this trust, this reliance on Jesus as your Savior, know this. Jesus came to seek and to save you. He can be your Savior today. The basis of joy found in Jesus, we see it here in verse 11. For unto you, unto you, the shepherds, the lowly, the third shifters, the unclean, the nobodies, unto you, the outsider, the poor, the oppressed, Luke will say in his gospel, the tax collectors, the Samaritans, the lowest in the society, you who feel most undeserving of mercy, most un undeserving of of even being called by his name you are who the savior came to seek and to save but you have to know you're lost the bible says that because of our rebellion against our creator we are lost we're not just rule breakers we're actually rule makers we've turned our back on our creator and ignored him and kind of set up our own kingship our own kingdom. We're happy to be on the throne. And so we're under his just wrath for our rebellion, our treason against him. And God tells us what we need. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. And then Jesus came to be that savior for us. As we come to Luke 2, we see that there are some kings around. And there are some shepherds around. But then in Jesus, we have the arrival of the shepherd king who seeks and saves those who are lost, who seeks and saves you, my friend. Will you come to your king today? Will you rely on your shepherd king to do for you what he says you need, which is to rescue you from the just wrath of God against you in your rebellion? Will you embrace the good news of Christmas, will you know the lasting joy that all the joys of the rest of today and tomorrow and this week are just pointing to weekly? Do you know lasting joy in Jesus? Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for your word and we thank you that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost amongst shepherds as the good shepherd who would lay his life down Father, thank you that he came as the true king, the ruler to whom we must submit. And so, Father God, I pray for my friends here this morning who are outside of Christ. Maybe those who consider themselves to be non-Christians, but maybe those who consider themselves to be Christians, but whose lives are not marked by worship. Father, I pray that they would trust in Jesus, the one who came to give what you say they need, which is a savior. Would you give them lasting joy this Christmas through Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.